Good morning, Randolph Street. You are all standing up, gathered in spaces, talking, and I look down and it's 10.05. So find your seats, folks, right? Boy, it is good to see you. And let me begin this first day of the week by saying to you, Happy Lord's Day. Welcome to our gathering here at Randolph Street. We come together to do what we can only do together, and that is corporately in song, preaching of the word, reading of the word, prayer, bring our praises as church to and before our God. So thank you for coming today, and I trust your hearts are prepared for this, that we can join together uh, with a passion in our souls, a passion that is wrought by the gospel of Jesus Christ, what God has done for us in Christ. I hope that is stirring your hearts this morning. So as you walk into this space, we open our mouths and we sing to this God who is worthy of all of our praises. Amen? May God grant that today to us. Grab your bulletins, just a few quick announcements uh, to, point your, to point you to this morning. Uh, first announcement is not in your bulletin, all right? And don't, don't go now, but you can grab it after the gathering. Uh, we have produced for you a little collection of Advent calls to worship by our dear brother, Sean Moran. And it is located in the back on the back table. Uh, we have printed them out, and there's about six, I believe, or so. We've had some help to get those together uh, for you to take home with you. Hopefully you can use those. Uh, in your devotions as you're working through Advent, uh, moving toward our Chris, into our Christmas season. So those are located on the back table. Uh, please grab those. They, uh, he, he put a lot of effort into those, a lot of time, and uh, they, we were the ones who benefited week in and week out. So uh, please grab those, if you would, on your way out. A couple of other announcements just to put before you. Thank you for all who have purchased poinsettias. Sadly, the supplier is out. We've maxed them out. So uh, we had to close that deadline a week early. I apologize for that. Uh, but thank you to all who participated in that particular effort. Uh, a couple of other notes. Training hour. We do have training hour next week, and that'll be our last training hour for a few weeks as we move through Christmas season and into the new year. And Sojourners, make sure you note December 16th is your Christmas luncheon. And uh, likewise, if you would let your eyes linger down and see our Christmas Eve service, that will begin here uh, 7 p.m. on December the 24th. Okay, there's a few other notes, but you can take time to look through those uh, as you have time. Let's take a moment on this Lord's Day to prepare our hearts asking God to do the work that only he can do in our souls as we come before him in worship this morning. So take a few moments and quietly pray. if you would, and let us allow the word of God to call us to worship this morning. Psalm 118, this is the word of the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, 
for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look on triumph on those who hate me. Amen. by confessing our faith together, we return to a selection from the Athanasian Creed. This section focuses on the shared characteristics of our triune God. Join with me. What quality the Father has
thankful to rest in these truths during the Advent season as we study the incarnation of Christ, the Son. Let us pray together. God, you are uncreated. You are before all things, you are in all things, and you hold together all things. You are immeasurable, and your kingdom will never end. You are eternal. You are the first and the last. Remind us of this truth as your word is read and sang and preached today so that you may be glorified. Father, as a body of believers, we are humbled by your unmerited grace. For we know that where our sin abounds, your grace abounds all the more. Continue to sanctify us by molding us into the image of Christ. For, for unbelievers here this morning that do not yet know that grace, Father, soften their hearts that they may be receptive to your gospel and grasp the true weight of their sin, and they can glory in the righteousness that comes with salvation. Father, we are thankful for Tim and Jason as they faithfully minister to our body. Give them wisdom in their teaching and shepherding of our flock. Use them to strengthen your church in Appalachia and around the world. Lord, your word is true and your promises are sure. As we worship this morning, quiet our minds and stir our souls so that you may be glorified in all that we do. In your name we pray, amen. Please stand. Bring thy promise. 
says to pass For I know thy power will keep me Till I'm home with thee at last Amen Continue to worship together. Let us listen to this God's holy word. A reading from the Gospel of John. 
truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do, not, I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. reading from the epistle to the church in Colossae. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. One of the gifts of the church in recent years is the musician's ability to reinvigorate and reimagine songs that have served the church throughout the ages. And as a worship team this morning, we'd like to introduce one of those uh, songs to you. We're going to sing the first verse, and the, the melody will sound very familiar, but we've got new words. Uh, and the chorus is going to be a little different. So the worship team, as you stand, we're going to sing the first verse and chorus. We're going to repeat that first verse verse and chorus and invite you to join us.
Thank you, Randolph Street, for how you engage and how you sing together as the church. This morning, instead of a video and a uh, nation for us to focus on and a prayer related to that particular nation, we've done one better this morning. We've brought the missionaries here. So at this time, I'd like to ask Peter and Sharon McMillan if they would come. And they are going to share with us their ministry uh, in Spain, a church planting ministry. For those of you who may be unaware of this, uh, Peter and Sharon, are, they are the father and mother, mother of Ben. And Hannah is the daughter-in-law. But most importantly, Elaine and Paloma are the grandkids. And so they're here with us, but they're really here just to visit the grandkids. But while they're here, we want to hear about your ministry and we want to pray with you this morning. Well, just thank you for your prayers over the years for Madrid, Spain. Some of you may, may know Larry and Ruth Ann Thornson, good friends of Thurnberg. Thurnberg yeah. uh, in fact, when we started the church there in Madrid, uh, we would worship at their church and actually use their baptistry for some of our first baptisms. So we've been good friends with Larry and Ruth Ann and appreciate their ministry. How many churches do you think there are in this county? How many evangelical churches in this county of 170 plus thousand? Just imagine if there was one. And that's kind of our situation where we live. We live in an area with four newer developments with 150,000 people, and we're the only Spanish evangelical churches. Larry and Ruth Ann work about 20, 20 minutes away. Sharon will share a little bit about what she does, and then I'll share a little bit. 
God's um, the opportunity and privilege um, to do, I guess, the beginning. Um, you do pretty much anything your hand finds to do, as the Bible says. Um, I, I was really ministered to by this, the words of this song. I kind of got teary, um, just um, thinking that I don't have to share. It's not an opinion of mine or a philosophy, but it's actual truth of something that happened um, historical, and that's the Jesus that I serve. And so, anyways, back to um, outreach, trying to reach Spaniards is, is very hard. And so we, each and I, we even acquire, I'm in a women's group, um, we do English conversation as well to get a, a friendship base going, to get to know them and they get to know us and then we can share, we share the gospel. Um, and then inside, like when, once they're believers, um, then we, I work with the women, training the women, training them to teach um, Sunday school as well. We have a small group of children now and also working with the music ministry. I, I play piano, keyboard, and so we have some trained uh, musicians, a few <laughs> now, to lead the service. And also with the women, discipling, um, doing Bible studies. A lot over the past year or so, I guess you probably know it was by Zoom. And so we're really happy to be back together again. Now they're letting us um, be together in homes and, and restaurants. So we're missionaries with Evangelical Alliance Mission, and the, the mission of TEAM is to send missionaries together with local churches to plant healthy, reproducing churches in other nations. So we were in Venezuela working for 20 years, planted four churches, and now we're in Madrid working on planting a healthy church. What does a healthy church look like? One of the ministries that I'm a part of is Nine Marks, and I coordinate the Spanish translation of the books. And we believe that's important to have expositor teaching to and understand how a church should be led, what is evangelism, what is the gospel. And we need healthy churches in Madrid. So we're thankful that we have now one elder who helps me in the training. We uh, use a program called Simeon Trust for reaching the elders, expository preaching, also the women that teach the Bible uh, in the same manner. But I involved in evangelism, discipleship, and like what was shared this morning, it's by God's grace that we can be in Spain, but we know that he has a, a church there in Spain and that we're faithful to teach the gospel, that those people will hear the shepherd's voice and will respond. I'm encouraged by 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20 that says, but who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? for yours, glory and joy. And I just thank the Lord for churches like you in the United States that is evidence that you're praying for the nations. And one day you'll worship in heaven and, and our joy will be to see others from those nations gathered around. So thank you, Randolph, for the emphasis you have on praying for the world, for praying for Madrid. And we're just a little token out there, um, appreciative churches like you in America that make it possible for us to be there. Amen. Thank you, Jason. Amen. You've been in Madrid how many years? Uh, going on 11. 11 years, and you were in Venezuela 20 years, so 31 years. We, we want to do two things as we pray for Peter and Sharon this morning. One, we, we want to just thank God for their lives. We want to thank God for calling them, for equipping them, gifting them, and sending them. As we study through the book of Acts, um, we are praying that God will kind of strike a new light in us, a new flame, if you will to burn for the nations, to burn for those who need to hear Christ. And so we are 
deeply grateful for folks like you who give your lives to go and to share the gospel. And then we want to pray for their ministry there. A um, few years before you retire is what I heard, right? 60, you're 64, uh, so a few years, and, uh, but we want to pray that the Lord will gift them, equip them to finish well, and to finish with much fruit abounding in the ministry. So join with me as we pray for Peter and Sharon. Well, Father, thank you for Peter and Sharon McMillan and how you have worked in their lives how you have shaped and formed them, equipped them, gifted them to serve the cause of Christ in Venezuela, to serve the cause of Christ in Spain. Thank you, Father, for calling them. Lord, we pray that as they continue to walk into ministry, that these would be fruitful, fruitful days for them. Lord, that they would sense your, your hand and your presence upon their lives, that you would sustain them in the midst of ministering in a difficult context. Uh, Lord, gift them with those skills necessary to reach into the, the communities there of Madrid, the 170 plus thousand people there without a clear gospel witness. Lord, open up doors for them to uh, not only plant this church, but open doors for relationships and networking throughout that particular area. Thank you for their relationship with the Thornburgs, our relationship with the Thornburgs for three plus decades, Father. And I would pray that you would continue to grow that in Madrid. And Lord, again, we pray that this would be a fruitful, maybe, maybe the most fruitful season of Peter and Sharon's work there in Spain. So Lord, thank you for your servants. Uh, we honor them today. Uh, grateful for their love for you. And uh, thank you, Father, for calling them and setting them apart for this work. Bless them, I pray. We ask that in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you. What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap, sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet, while shepherds watch our keeping. This, this is Christ the Shepherd. 
worship team and Kathy for ministering to us today. If you'll take your Bibles and open with me to Colossians chapter 1. We continue our four-week Advent series. As I introduced this last Sunday morning, I shared with you that we were going to be looking at kind of a theological series, if you will. We're going to focus two Sundays in on the deity of Christ. Today is the second Sunday of that particular effort. Last Sunday was maybe complex and difficult, a little challenging, hopefully, to our minds. I've always committed here as a pastor to never treat you like first graders. Like, but I want to press you and push you. I want to push me into the depths and the glories of our God, and last Sunday was an effort to do that as we think about the deity of Christ, and we're going to follow that up this Sunday with a part two. The last two Sundays of Advent, we're going to be looking at the humanity of Christ. So the, the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ is a theological series, and we're going to kind of bring those together, if you will, over the next couple of weeks. And I trust that you will find this series helpful as you prepare you and your family for our Advent celebration. Historically, just a little review, the church has always affirmed that there is but one God, that this one God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not three gods, only one God, who exist eternally in three distinct persons, all equal, all eternal. That's what the church has affirmed, grounded on this apostolic truth that we have in the scriptures. That is what the church has affirmed since her inception. That's why we read this morning selections from the Athanasian Creed. As Andrew was leading us through that particular creed, it's overwhelming, right, as... We're going, to, we're going to come back to some of these ideas in a moment, but as the church looked at the Scriptures and said, this is, this is what the Scriptures teach. This is what the church believes and affirms as we think about God, especially this idea of this Trinitarian nature of God, one God existing eternally in three distinct persons, all eternal, all equal, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
The church has always affirmed, as we think about Advent, that at the incarnation, the eternal Son of God took upon himself humanity, took upon himself a human nature, the eternal Son of God. In doing so, he did not lose divinity nor cease to be God. We, we wrestled with that last year in the book of Philippians. Remember that? Now, I'm going to recite that text later, Philippians chapter 2. We wrestled with what it meant to, for the Son of God to empty himself. What it does not mean is he lost nothing of deity in the incarnation, but instead he took up on himself full, true humanity. The church... This is why we, we, we do these creeds and confessions, because we want to join the church and what the church has always confessed. The church has always confessed that Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, is fully and truly divine. He is God. He carries, if you will, the fullness of the divine essence. He is eternal and infinite and immutable and omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent. He is God. The church has always affirmed that. And the mystery of Christmas, that which we're walking into, the mystery of Advent, is this God now took upon himself human flesh. And now the second person of the Godhead. Listen, I know this is... This is, we need this. I know I'm pressing you a little bit. The second person of the Godhead, two natures, fully divine, truly human, two natures in one person. That is what the church has always affirmed. That's the truth that we believe today here at Randolph Street Baptist Church. That the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, Fully God, truly God, took up on himself human flesh, human nature. Last Sunday, in that long, boring, complicated introduction, I took a few moments to kind of review some of church history and the battles that have been fought over this issue. I mean, if you, you look through the early church, and by the way, I've, I've got five books on my front seat down here. Uh, five books, if you'd like to come up afterwards, about uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Incarnation, uh, the early church, the history of this, this battle that, that um, in many ways took over the first three-plus centuries of the church about the person of Christ. I got five books up here that you feel free to come and look at. Um, if you still one of my books on the Trinity, then you obviously need it more than I do, Right? Just bring it back, please, okay? These hopefully will serve and help you in some way. Colossians chapter 1. Last Sunday, we worked through one little phrase. Verse 15, if you look down at that verse, he is the image of the invisible God. Speaking of Jesus, what is ascribed to him is he is the image of the invisible God. Today, we're going to walk through the second phrase, but I'm going to work through 16 and 17 with it. Jesus now is ascribed to, he is affirmed to be the firstborn of all creation. So two phrases about Jesus that are really important for us as we think about the incarnation, the advent, and helping us understand the person of Christ. Last Sunday, my goal with that first little phrase was simply affirm to you 
what the scriptures ascribe to Jesus in that he is the image of God. That phrase that we looked at last week, if you remember some of that, it, it tells us something about what the Son did, right? The Son reveals God. I think that's part of what the image of God means here. It tells us something about what the Son did in the incarnation. He explained God. He exegeted God to us. He revealed God to us. But I would argue it tells us even more about the Son, not simply about what he did, but it tells something about him, namely that he carries within himself the fullness of the divine essence. And this, is, this is God. So when Paul uses this language, that this is the image of God, Jesus is the image of God, listen, get out of your mind what happens in Genesis 1 fully. This is one who now reveals God, and he does so because of what he says later in this particular verse, read earlier about him in verse number 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or chapter 2, verse number 9. In him, the fullness of deity dwells. So Jesus, when he came in the incarnation, he reveals God to us how he does so because the fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. That's how he reveals or images God to us. And last Sunday, I had very little application. I just wanted us to think about that truth. At the, at the end of last Sunday, I'm going to embarrass her because she's here this morning, Joyce. Joyce texted me at the end of that sermon, and she, the only thing she said was, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And that was really the goal of the entire sermon, is to set our eyes upon Jesus and see what the Scriptures ascribe to him as the image of God and to step away from that, not with silly little application points, but really just one thought entering our hearts and minds, and that is what Joyce texted me. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He's the image of the invisible God. Today, just quick outline. We're going to go to that second phrase, the firstborn over all creation. And we're going to see two aspects of Christ's relationship to creation. You remember last week I said the first half of this verse, Christ's relationship to the Father. He's the image of God. The second half of this verse, verse this is not new to me. This is probably from some commentary that I read at some point. The second half is Christ's relationship to creation the firstborn of all creation. So we're going to look at two points, Christ as the creator, we're going to see that in this text, and Christ as the sustainer of all creation. And I want to make a little effort this morning to do uh, quite a bit more application, since this is my last Sunday on the deity of Christ. So let's read the whole of this. Even though it was just read to us, I'm going to read it again just so we can catch it. Speaking of Jesus... He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's the first stanza of this, what was probably an early church him so what about this phrase the firstborn of all creation in this particular statement Paul is 
going to help us understand the relationship of Christ to what our eyes see and really what our eyes do not see. He's spoken of the relationship of the Son to the Father. He's the image of God. Now we're going to see his relationship to creation. We're going to see first, he's the creator. So this little phrase may be a little confusing in light of everything I said last week. Because what I ascribed to Jesus last week, what the scriptures ascribed to Christ, you even heard it as Stacy was reading John 8, what the scriptures ascribed to Christ is eternality. I mean, that's part of the divine essence. He's eternal. And now Paul uses language that fills temporal. He's the firstborn of all creation. This word probably creates a little tension maybe in your mind as you read through this. This particular word literally means, this is Doug Moon's commentary, excellent commentary in Colossians, literally means the first to come from the womb. And Paul's going to take that and apply it to Jesus. This is the one whom we have said is uncreated. And then Paul uses a phrase here that feels like, upon our initial reading, it feels like he's saying that Jesus is created. You remember the whole battle of Arius. I mean, this is, this is why the Nicene Creed eventually would be written. The battle of the early church against Arius. You'd say that there was a time when the sun was not. In other words, indicating there was a time when he was not, so therefore the sun was created. And the church would rise up in the midst of that discussion, in the midst of that controversy, and they would affirm, no, that is not true. The sun is eternal. This Arianism that developed with Arius did not go away in the fourth century. It, it lingered throughout the history of the church, and it lingers even in our day. Have you ever had a knock on the door from a Jehovah's Witness? They would be modern-day semi-Arians, if you will, thinking that there was a point in which Christ, the Son, did not exist. In 325 A.D. at Nicaea, over 250 bishops would gather, and they would wrestle through this truth. And they would confront this false teaching that Jesus was not eternal, that he was created by the Father, and he was not infant and infinite, but limited. And they would develop out of that what we have read this morning, that kind of language. But this is kind of a go-to verse for those who may say that Jesus is created. I mean, here it is, right? In, in white and in black lettering here, he is the firstborn of all creation. That sounds like to me then that Jesus had a beginning. So what's it mean? Well, there's two ways we could look at this particular word or phrase. We could look at it in the literal sense, and if we looked at it in a literal sense, then we would walk away from this and say, okay, then he's created. The problem with looking at this word in a literal sense is we've got to, we've got to bring the rest, of the, the weight of Scripture to bear on this particular phrase. Right? Otherwise, we can look at this word and see it in the context of, and the argument of which Paul is putting it forward for us. It's used in kind of a metaphorical sense, right? Paul's allowed to use language metaphorically. 
And context is going to help us understand this word as we walk through it. I think what Paul is using this phrase to indicate is this. The the significance of Christ's position over all creation. In other words, he is preeminent over all that comes after him, just like the firstborn son. He is first in order of significance. He is unique and he is preeminent over all things. That's what the whole emphasis of this text is. So when Paul uses this language, he's the firstborn over creation. It's a metaphorical way for Paul to say to us that this Christ, he is supreme, he is preeminent over all things. Just like a firstborn son. Now we're going to see that as we work through this. Let's dig into that a little bit. Look down at your Bibles, if you would. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Paul here affirms that nothing was created. It's not good grammar. Nothing was created that was not created by Christ. Notice just how particular you hear with with phrasing, especially at the end of this. All things were created through him. To go back, everything in heaven and everything on earth, everything your eyes can see and everything your eyes cannot see, everything, whether it's thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, everything has been created by Christ. If Christ were created, surely Paul's argument, his supporting argument, would not be Christ has created all things. Instead, what happens here in verse number 16, it supports what Paul is arguing in verse number 15 by illustrating this preeminent position that Christ carries over all creation. He has made everything. He has created everything. There is nothing that exists that has been created that has not been created by Christ. When Paul uses this language, he's the firstborn of all creation, what Paul is saying is he stands over all creation. He carries a preeminent role over everything. He's supreme. That's what Paul's arguing here. This is his relationship to creation. Now take that in during this Advent season. This isn't a typical Advent meditation. But what Paul's ascribing to Jesus here, the second person of the Godhead is this. He is the creator of everything. Nothing exists that was created that was not created by Jesus. So every atom in this created universe This vast created universe, every atom was created by Christ. I do this occasionally. My scientific research means I Google something, okay? But but this, this little thought in light of Advent got me chasing some things. We live in a universe that even our most powerful technology and most brilliant scientists cannot precisely calculate. They can't do it. The size. I read a few studies this past week. There are estimates, some suggest, that there may be up to 2 trillion galaxies. 
we're at least somewhere between hundreds of billions and one or two trillion. That's a big gap. That's galaxies. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, according to NASA, contains somewhere between 100 billion to 400 billion stars. So take this in. Up to two trillion galaxies, hundreds of billions of stars within each. And in this text, Paul, not knowing the half of that, stands and says, Christ created all of it. Every atom, every molecule that exists, Christ created it. Every square inch of our universe, Christ created. This text elevates our Savior up and says, he stands over all of creation as the creator. One writer says, through his son, God made the universe. It is impossible for man to understand the full import of that statement. But complete understanding is not the objective of this point. That's really important for us. Complete understanding is not the objective here. He says the objective here is to recognize the majesty of the Son of God who was present at creation, not created. He was present at creation, and he is the sovereign Lord of all created things. Namely, he is God. The Son's glory is, is seen in that he was uncreated and that he is the creator of all things. I mean, if you look down at verse number 17 of Colossians chapter 1, he is before all things. It's a clear statement. Before, before all things existed, there he is. Before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. Before all things, he is before all things. He stands before all things. He creates all things. What was hidden in the Old Testament is clear in the New Testament. Texts like this. The New Testament writers affirm this truth. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then, and then they use these words so carefully. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You hear that? Nothing was made that was not made by him. Nothing exists except by the Son causing it to exist. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse number 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Through whom are all things. I mean, this is like Colossians chapter 1, right? For by him all things were created. You want to talk about the things in heaven? You want to talk about the things in the earth? You want to talk about the things your eyes can see, the things your eyes can't see, thrones and dominions and rulers and powers? Everything is created by Jesus. And note, if you would, at the end of verse number 16, all things were created by him and all things were created for him. 
So Paul here pictures Jesus as standing before all creation and over all creation. And then Paul says, Jesus is the reason creation exists. It's all moving toward the goal and the glory of Jesus. So what Paul's affirming here is that everything is made by him. Everything is his. And everything is for him. Doug Moo says Christ stands at the beginning of the universe as the one through whom it came into being, and he stands at the end as the goal of the entire universe. That is the second person of the Godhead, Jesus. Let me do a little bit of application, if I could, in light of that first point. As we sit here on the second Sunday of Advent and we anticipate and we celebrate the birth of our Savior, this is a truth I think that should press into our hearts and grip us, if you will. I mean, this, this is the mystery of the Advent, right? The one who is born of Mary is the creator of all things. When you grab that little reflection that, that uh, we put together from Sean's calls to worship, you're going to hear a fairly common theme in his calls to worship during Advent season. And it surrounds that idea that the one here who was born of Mary is the one who created everything. And this is why the incarnation should be so staggering for us as Christians because we begin to recognize that this is God in the flesh. This is the creator, the divine now, who has entered into human history through taking up on himself a human nature. See, the glory of the incarnation is not found in shepherds and angels and wise men or even a young virgin. The glory of the incarnation is this glorious truth of Emmanuel, God with us. This is God in the flesh. This is what we believe. This is what we affirm. This is what we celebrate during this Christmas season. One writer picks up on this idea and he says, the early Christians were convinced that the same person who had lived among men was the very one who created all men. And, and they were swept up into that glory. That, that the very person who lived among them as a man, that's what their eyes could see, as, as a man, this is the very person who likewise had created all mankind. Thomas Watson would add, that man should be made in God's image is a wonder, but that God should be made in man's image is a greater wonder. The ancient of days would be born, that he who thunders in the heavens should cry in the cradle. That's the mystery. This Advent season, let's not miss what we are actually saying. This isn't about some cute little baby in a manger. It is that. But let's understand what we are saying as a church, what the scriptures testify to. Namely, this is God. This is our creator. And he took up on himself human flesh, a human nature, and he has dwelt among us. Let us be captured by that glorious wonder of the incarnation. Number two, the more we understand of the deity of Christ, the more we let our minds think through the deity of Christ, the more we recite things like the Athanasian Creed, 
the more we understand why the incarnation has always been understood as the humiliation of Christ. We worked through that in Philippians chapter 2, but the incarnation is understood by, by theologians and scholars and by the church as the humiliation of Christ. Well, as we understand who Jesus is, we understand why he was humbled in this. This is the one who created all things, and in the incarnation, he subjects himself to creation. This is the eternal one who is now born in time, time and subjects himself to the limitations of humanity. This is the text we worked through last year, speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, all right, you could, if you write in your Bibles, it's Philippians chapter 2 or Colossians chapter 1. These, you can just merge these two together, right? He was in the form of God. He's the image of God. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. When we understand the person of Christ, we understand how deep the descent was for him to enter into our humanity, our condition. This is why we're working hard on this. I want you to, I want you to get a proper view of Jesus the second person of the Godhead, eternal and infinite. I want, you to, I want you to see that. So as we walk into Advent and we start thinking about Christmas morning and we start thinking about the birth of Jesus, we understand the significance of this moment and the depth of his descent into the state of humiliation. This is God. And he dwells among us. Number three, third application. This is really important. Look down at your Bibles, if you would. I want you to get some context of this verse that we're working through the last two weeks. The bookends of this early church hymn are verse 14 and verse 21. So go back to verse 14 or 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So he's showing us what God has done for us in Christ. Right? He's, he's brought forth redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, flip over to verse number 21. At the end of this hymn, the other bookend, he says, he says this, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So, so both sides of this hymn that we're looking at about the deity of Christ, both sides of this hymn are, are full of the idea of what God has done for us in Christ. He lays out the redemption that's been won by Christ. And in the midst of all of that, he strategically places this statement about Jesus. Our redemption that has been secured has been secured by the eternal Lord. Now, this is not some good moral man who died for our sins. This is the eternal God. So in this, he's bringing forth some assurance for us, right? Some confidence. Our salvation has been won by Jesus. Now, let me show you who Jesus is. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He has made everything. This is the one who died for you. We want to see that. Spurgeon would say, 
I love to think that he who created all things is also our Savior. For then, Spurgeon says, he can create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. If I need a complete new creation, as I certainly do, my Jesus is equal to that task. How can you know the reconciliation happened? How can you know your redemption is secured in Christ? Well, look at who he is. You want to know who won your redemption? It is the image of God, the firstborn over all creation. It is the one who has created everything. He's the one who has reconciled you to the Father. So in this, Paul is just building our confidence in the gospel. This wasn't some just good moral man who died for us. This is God in the flesh. And in our place, condemned he stood. Let's look at the second half of this statement here. Back to Colossians 1. He's the firstborn of all creation. Down in verse number 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So this is the second part of Christ's relationship to creation. The first part, he's the firstborn. He's created everything. He's preeminent. The second part is this little phrase in verse number 17, his relationship to creation. He holds everything together. This is a statement about Jesus. All of creation exists because of him, and all creation continues to exist because of him. This is, this is no little Savior. Everything exists because of Christ. Everything continues to exist because of Christ. He's not detached from creation, but he's engaged in sustaining creation. Everything that exists is held together by Christ. Everything. The writer of Hebrews is going to pick up on this very idea in chapter 1, verse number 3, when he says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. You think of this, that our telescopes cannot even begin to fathom or imagine the most modern technology, the, the, the width and the depth and the breadth of our universe. All of that Jesus created and all of that Jesus sustains. He holds it all together. And the writer of Hebrews says he does so by the word of his power. What a glorious thought. Jesus says exists, and it exists. Jesus says continue to exist, and it continues to exist, and nothing can withstand his authority and supremacy and sovereignty over creation. This is why he's called the firstborn of all creation. He stands preeminent over all of it. He creates it, and he sustains it. I mean, what a glorious Christ we have. I mean, think of this. Nothing exists without him. Everything continues to exist by him. That's your Savior. That's the one who has saved you. I think Spurgeon's thought here about Jesus being the creator, I think it applies here to Jesus being the sustainer also. I mean, it goes like this. If Jesus can uphold the universe by the word of his power, guess what? He can uphold you. He can sustain you. I mean, if Jesus can st stands over all creation and by the word of his power, everything continues to exist and hold its place, guess what? 
He can preserve you. If he can sustain the universe, he can sustain me. Even in the weakness of our flesh and the weariness of this world, the burden of sin that rests upon us, there he stands in this text as a sovereign and sustaining savior. He upholds everything. Jesus would say in John chapter 10 about the sheep, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And then he follows it up by saying this, no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. Well, when you understand Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 and 18 and following, then that verse makes a lot of sense, right? When Jesus stands before us and he says, listen, all that the Father has given me, I'm going to give them eternal life. And guess what? Nobody will ever snatch them out of my hand. How can he say that? Well, he's the eternal God, the creator of all things and sustainer of everything. That's how he can say that. Randolph Street, do you see how important it is to think rightly about Jesus? I mean, this whole deity, humanity, when we get into the humanity of Christ beginning next week, it's going to get even more practical. But this whole thought of the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, listen, it's not some academic seminary talk. It's, it's complicated, it's hard, it's, it's confusing at times. But listen, when you begin to understand the very person and the very nature of Jesus, you begin to see how practical and how rich it is for your weary, sin-ridden soul. This is a sovereign, sustaining Savior. In just a few moments, we're going to walk to these tables. When we come to these tables, our elders, we, we do this intentionally. We're going to verbalize to you. This is the body. This is the blood of Christ. Well, when you hear that today, maybe, maybe that takes on a, a little deeper meaning for you this morning. Because what we're saying to you is the eternal Son of God took up on himself human flesh, and he died in your place. Here he is, the body and the blood of Christ. Let those truths, let that mystery just rest on your heart as you come to these tables. Maybe this hymn helps you, familiar hymn. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for, such, for a sinner such as I? Was it for crimes that I have done that man should be made? Oops, sorry, wrong one. Was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned up on the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Then this verse right here. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when God the mighty maker died for his own creature's sin. That truth is what Paul is pressing into you this morning by the Spirit of God. Christ, the mighty maker, he died for his creature's sins. And that's you. Let us walk to these tables this morning, maybe with renewed, deeper appreciation for the very person of Christ and, and how that affects me as his child. Amen? I'm going to ask our elders to come now, if they would, and prepare these tables.
as they are preparing these tables, let me encourage and invite you to come in just a moment. You'll be dismissed row by row, and if you're a believer in Christ, if your hope rests fully and solely in Jesus, we invite you to come. It's not about being a member of this church or another church. If your hope is Christ and Christ alone, we invite you to come this morning to partake of these elements, to reflect and to remember and to commune with Christ. As you come, our elders are going to remind you what we are celebrating this morning. Please return to your seats with the elements, and I'll come back in a few moments and lead us together in the celebration of the sacrament. Let's pray together. Well, Father, these are truths that for me personally are overwhelming, striking, they're profound, they're mysterious. Father, I would pray that as we consider that, the very nature, the very character, the very person of Christ, God, the one who dwelt among us this morning, as we set our minds upon those truths and now walk to these tables, let us as your people be overwhelmed by this staggering truth This is God in the flesh dwelling among us. That is who went to that cross and won our salvation. So let us let us let that truth settle deeply into our hearts today. Jesus Christ is Lord of all things. As we come and we celebrate with this cup and with this bread. Father, I would pray that if there are any unbelievers gathered here or listening online this morning, that you would use these truths, and now this moment at the, at the table, that you would use the truths presented here, the, the gospel, to grant to them today repentance and faith, that they might believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ today and be saved. Father, do that work in them that you and only you are able to accomplish. Lord Jesus, be glorified as your people gather now, as we come and we partake and we remember and we commune with you, our risen, ascended Christ. Be glorified, O Jesus. So, Father, bless now our time. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Deacons, you can begin dismissing.
was preaching at a church several months ago, one of our network churches. And their elder who, I don't remember his name, just a godly, godly man. That particular day as they served the Lord's table, he stood before their people of 60, 70 folks. And as they would walk forward, he would look them in the eyes and he would say, Anne, this is Christ's body for you. And this is his blood for you. Joyce, this is Christ's body for you. This is Christ's blood for you. And I remember standing there that day just overwhelmed, deeply moved. As you think about who Jesus is, and you think about the cross, it is for you, sinner, that he died. Let's bow our heads and just take that in for a moment. Paul would say what he received from the Lord he delivers to us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said to us his church this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me In the same way, Jesus would take the cup and he would look his disciples in the eyes and he would look the church in her eyes. And he would say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul affirms that truth we love to hear. As often as you eat this bread and drink of that cup, together we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. The people of God pull ourselves around this cup and around this bread, and we look with expectant hearts of that day when Jesus will come and take us into his kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are a glorious Christ. And Savior, our hearts are absolutely full this morning of who you are, your person, your nature. We are overwhelmed today. The fact that you are our creator and sustainer, you uphold everything by the word of your power. You are our Savior. And in that we rejoice this day. Thank you for saving us from our sins and reconciling us to the Father. 
bringing a full and complete redemption for us, your people. Oh, we rest there this morning, Father. We rest there. As we stand in a few moments and we sing this last song, would you be exalted, O oh God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we, as we speak of this glorious Christ as together in unity, we sing these truths together. Would you, O oh God, be exalted among your people. Blessed be your name forever and ever. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand if you would and let's sing together.
I can't think of a better song to walk out of Colossians chapter 1 with than that song affirming that this is the glorious Christ that song always and forever will remind me of Sean I can see his hair shaking up here (laughs) as he leads us grab those reflections on the back table when you walk out all right, let that, let Sean call us to worship a few times these next couple of weeks as we think about this glorious Christ we love and serve today. For our benediction, we are reading this all of December, speaking this over you as we depart each Lord's Day. This is the benediction of all of Scripture. The Lord would speak this to Moses. He would speak it over the people. The Lord bless you. And the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and in Christ give you peace. Amen.